Hello and welcome to Design Education Talks from the New Art School. Our guest today is Taha Duri. Welcome, Taha. Thank you, Andres, for being here. It's fantastic to have you here. So tell us about you and your work. Well, uh, by training, I am. Uh, I, I worked with architecture for years, but you cannot legally say that I'm an architect because I did not choose to go the professional way. I've studied at the University of Pennsylvania, where I had my PhD in architecture. Um, usually, it's done at, through a historic perspective because that's what it's believed to be the way to evidentiate theoretical uh, uh, argument to historic evidence. Um, by the time that I was finishing off my PhD, I, was, let's say, I moved to New York City at the same time and was working in practice. Uh, I did that for about a decade, about 10 years working in practice. And uh, after that, which is, takes us to almost 2005, that's when I chose to go into academia. So um, it's, I tried to do a healthy combination between practice and uh, academia in order to give myself some some diverse experience and also have a, a level of credibility in the work. But we can talk about later as, as you can ask me. Fantastic. So tell us about the work and research you're doing right now. The, well, it, this is uh, quite a, a, a lapse from, from the, the starting of my career because my PhD dissertation was about, believe it or not, the consecration ceremony of King Charles X of France which was a religious ceremony. And you may ask what got you to even investigate that or look into it. The reason is my interest in architectural expression in times of political instability. That seems to be a subject that continues to be relevant to date. And if not actually is gaining added relevance as we go forward. So this is part of the reason why I uh, wanted to examine that. Now, ever since, I've published numerous uh, uh, articles that discussed the relationship between um, eternal ideas like God, government, identity, um, nationalism, patriotism, um, and how they get expressed in aesthetic terms. Ever since, I've been publishing almost regularly on the subject. Currently, I'm doing something that's still an offshoot of that which was a paper I recently finished on the relationship between art and war. Now, art and war is a subject that has been discussed before, so this it's not new in itself. But as Onions had said in, in his Unity of Philosophical Experience, uh, the questions remain, but the answers mutate, meaning we will always be asking the same questions, but they will acquire new answers as time progresses and as circumstances change. Uh, the perspective I chose for my current research paper was a reading uh, of John Ruskin's uh, lecture on war that he published in his later on in his book, uh, The Crown of Wild Olives. And um, that is a subject by itself, but that's what's currently I've been working on. I just finished it recently. Fantastic, fantastic. So what is, what is it that made you get into, into teaching? Well, actually, my, my initial intent has, be, has been to, to, to become a, a university professor because there is this misconception that people who talk about something are unable to practice it or unable to do it. That's why they speak of it. 
And in order to dispel that notion on the most intimate and personal level of my own life, I, I started by actually practicing architecture. Um, but ultimately, what got me into teaching is a question that was with me from the first beginning of my architectural education, from the day one at um, freshman year. I thought that the way they're teaching us architecture hinges primarily on how to do things. It's a question of how. Uh, the technicality, the know-how, the assemblage, the articulation, the materials, the dimensions, and things of that nature. When I was more interested in learning why things are done. And I think the question of why is far more complex and also quite mutant. It's a question that mutates. Um, people will continue to have different reasons, often driven by circumstances uh, and abilities, limitations, but at the same time, you can never really pinpoint the reasoning for any kind of creative act, why things were done a certain way. And also, the question of why tends to be also the most interpretive. Um, any critic, any observer, any layperson will always have their own answers as to why things are done a certain way and not another. And from my roots in art, because I've been almost like an instinctive artist, I've always painted for as long as I can remember. And I wanted to regulate that tendency, if you will, by studying architecture. Um, while I never studied art, I, I always had the notion that if you study art, your natural talent will be contaminated. How conceited is that? But I still wanted things to be a little bit more instinctive then. But, but then architecture I have to study because there is definitely a scientific aspect to it. Point is, um, to be able to move forward with a creative act without worrying about addressing an audience while at the same time taking into account a certain functionality was not an easy question to answer for me. I wanted to be able to do something that works in a design sense, but at the same time, be able to, if you will, pass my own private secret reasons for doing things without having to explain them. Uh, one of the most common answers that I give to somebody who asks me about my paintings, what is this? What is this painting about? Is it is what you see. The painting is about what you see. And I do believe that the observer, whoever they are, and no matter what level of, of relevance or education or anything else they have in, in the field, including none at all, they are part of the work. And what they see is just as valid as the artist's initial intent. It is really not my business to apply my intent to the observer. And the observer's viewpoint is as informative as my initial viewpoint was one day. So it's, it's, a, it's an interactive reality that continues to be so for as long as a work of art or artifact or architecture can stay to live. This is, this is really interesting. This is really interesting. So what are, what are the current challenges you're facing? Um, one of the main challenges I'm facing is some kind of, I don't know if there is such a word, but I will explain it. It's a uniformization of education. Education is being made uniform. Um, all disciplines, and, and I know that even legally you're not supposed to say the word all or any because you could open yourself up to liability, but I'm actually very audaciously saying all disciplines 
are being treated like they are uh, two teeth of a comb. That what works for the school of business and the school of law and the school of dentistry and the school of general medicine will have to work for a school of design, when actually it doesn't. And the way they're approaching education is that you have to fill in slots in standardized spreadsheets where whether it applies or it doesn't apply, you must fill that spreadsheets for the approval of the powers that be. My problem is not the approval of the powers that be, is that most of the time the powers that be are not in the field and they don't understand how irrelevant their slots are to what we do. And I think that's quite damaging indeed to a designer's education. Uh, not only is it something that is forced upon them, and we know that everything once forced about human beings becomes abhorrent, but also it is something that subjugates the freedom of thought and limits the essential instinctive freedom, which should be the starting point for any creative act. Uh, Friedrich Schiller, the French playwright, says... A man may never must. What that means is that once will has been put under any kind of external force, the very humanity of a human has been compromised. And I think that kind of compromise is something I'm dealing with every day. And, the, and it's a big schism between the creator and the decision maker. And that is damaging. That is very damaging. I always like to cite my favorite example of the unity between the decision maker and the creator. When Alexander the Great picked his architect to be his prime minister, that, that's the, the, the brightest and most shining moment in, in the history of, of design industries united because that was, there, there was no distance. It was actually the shortest fuse between decision making and creativity. And I think that that is very, quite far indeed from where we are right now. And that's the biggest challenge. And I face this day in and day out. It's an actual living, breathing reality with me. Absolutely. This is, this is, an, international, this is an international challenge. So what, what can we do to, to bridge the, this gap? The, the solution has to come from a point of paradigm, really. We cannot bridge the gap on a procedural or regulatory level. This is not something that some, I don't know, university decision maker, president, vice president, provost, who has affinities for design, who is going to give us some more license. That's not how it's supposed to work. I think it has to come from a much more overarching approach to colleges of design. Um, there, there are bodies like the Association of the Collegiate Schools of Architecture and things like that. But besides helping people find jobs and, and publishing articles that only dedicate and intensify the stale sense of scholarship, I don't see them doing much in that sense. And I think that the insular nature of the schools of design, because schools of design tend to attract large egos, I'm afraid. I shouldn't say that about my own people, but that's kind of a reality that, that it may help if one admits to it. And with that in mind, um, egos tend to be insular and tend to be defensive. Uh, and they tend to naturally 
veer away from collaboration in the real sense of the word. Again, I may be making a, a generalization here, but if we're looking at empirical evidence for any kind of guidance, we will see that there is a general lack of collaboration that in the event that it happened, we may be able to pick up how the professions under design are perceived. And there are many professions. In fact, I've always maintained that design, including architecture, is not a discipline. It's actually a point of convergence of everything. We are the eyes with which everyone sees. We are the tongue and the voice that expresses all the professions. And we are all the five senses and the way they engage in presenting any discipline and any idea, including cinema, which, which is now is overpowering everything, the performance arts, uh, music, all of it is actually a matter of design. And until that is understood to be something of its own merit that has no place following others, then we're going to have this, this, this problem that we're enduring persists really, because I don't see anybody defending it or rising up in the face of these overpowering tendencies to make it as uniform as everything else. Yes, ab ab absolutely. I think the awareness is not there. The awareness is definitely not there. Yes, yes, agreed. So how can we help in this, in this turbulent environment? How can we help students um, close the gap between their studies and, and, the, and the employment and, the, and their employability? Listen, the, the, the result has already, um, I think, is already there. I think that in every institution that I've worked and in every institution that I've interfaced with as, I don't know, a guest critic, a guest lecturer, or anything else, I've noticed that the School of Design, the College of Design, School of Architecture, College of Arts and Sciences with an architecture in it, anything of that nature, tends to be quite autonomous. And the more successful it is in the way it works, it's kind of the output of, of the more autonomous it is. Yes. Um, because, you know, generally, designers tend to um, approach those kinds of battles with an aloof outlook. If I'm not going to convince you that I have something you need to offer, then I probably will not fight this battle. And probably I will satisfy you with your little spreadsheets and statistics that you want in order for the name of the school to, to stay afloat. Yeah. But internally, I will tell my students what I please in terms of how they need to survive as designers and how they need to perceive their relevance to society. Yeah. One of the main things that I personally, as an educator, have been interested in uh, and, and that is where I count character building to be in a college of design, is to create with the students a sense of social responsibility. That sounds a little bit awful, but actually it is not. Um, how many runways can you design and how many galleries can you design and how many fashion institutes can you create? I think beyond that, beyond projects of personal vanity, if you as an educator were able to create some kind of awareness amongst your students about the society in which they live as a broader concept and a broader notion, then I think some, some goal has been achieved. Uh, by example of the program that I founded and ran for 10 years, 
I could tell you that when we started doing uh, our graduation thesis projects, I had four or five fashion headquarters to be designed. By the time we were at the end of our decades, one decade, um, I had projects of uh, children with Down syndrome, uh, violence against women, fighting sectarianism through design, um, educational facilities, and youth centers that will supposed to pick up youth off of the streets and attract them to a facility where they can meet one another, share interests, and delve into the professional world from an alternate point to university education. So, and these came from the students. They were not dictated by the program. They were not presented to them. All we gave them was uh, the maximum square footage with which to work. But they actually came up with these pro programs, which means that we were probably doing something right along the way to draw their attention that some of these notions do exist around us. Are they relevant to you? Are you going to do anything about them? Or are you just going to pass by in your cloud of, of benign creativity that doesn't have any dialogue with the world? So in that sense, I do consider that a measure of success, being able to create something that responds to society somehow. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So if you could just have, have the magic wand and you could do whatever you, you, you wanted, what, what would you change? What would you remove or add? Well, I would move around us from, move us around from being a service industry because it, things are aggressively moving in that direction. And I wholeheartedly disagree with that. I am violently against that, if that's even possible as, a, as an expression. You know, uh, I was, uh, you know, I've, I've worked at, at a major firm, major in, in New York City, where the mission was to serve the client best as we can. Yeah. And for me, there is a lot to be desired at that statement because it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it, it starts by subjugating the will. And we talked about the will as being the driving force, the driving dynamo behind, behind the creative act. If your aim is to serve, then what kind, of, what kind of value do you bring? What kind of meaning do you introduce? And how much willing are you to bring the client's awareness to meaning that they may not know? The fact that they hold their, your paycheck does not mean they know more than you do. Absolutely. In fact, in fact, it's it's your primary job to go through the battle of making your vision known and credible and elevate a client's vision to the level of yours because you are the expertise at the end of the day. I had somebody say to me uh, in, in a lecture that was supposed to enhance, uh, um, you know, performance in the workplace or something. Uh, the worst thing that could happen to you is losing a client. At point of which I raised my hand, I said, the worst thing that could happen to me is losing myself, really. <laughs> losing my integrity. A client will go, another one will come. But, but for me, if I'm going to be salivating over that one client and I'm, I'm going to be doing anything they want to retain them, then I, I, why am I any different from any contractor or anybody else who provides literally a service and nothing more, nothing less? So, so I would change that. I would really change that because that is not where, she, where we should be headed. But I do see that largely that's what, where we're headed. And then the colleges that consider themselves elite, 
I find that on the one hand, they offer a very, well, I don't want to say arrogant viewpoint, but in a way it is a viewpoint that doesn't deign to realize or admit the challenges, but considers themselves that by the name of us being so-and-so, we will shape the world. But as a result, the students learn those lofty concepts and then only to dip nosedive into the work field when they find out that somebody with not a fraction of their education level is telling them what to do. So they actually come out of, of, of a certain level of promise at the education level into another level of lack of promise at the profession and they don't know what happened in between the two. They have to re-educate themselves all over again once, once they are in the work field. So, so I really would change that if I could. That is, that is, that is very accurate. That is very accurate. So how can our viewers and listeners find you? How can they find me? I'm actually quite available uh, on all the, um, all the platforms. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm on Instagram. Uh, Dr. Tahaduri is my name on Instagram. On LinkedIn is Tahaduri, T-A-H-A-D-U-R-I. I'm also at, currently uh, the Dean of the College of Design at the American University in uh, the Emirates. It is, the name is the American University in the Emirates, but the location is in Dubai. Um, and I can be found on, on the website, which is aue.ae as well, in the College of Design. Uh, other than that, of course, there's always email, which is tahaduri at gmail.com, or my email at the university. So I'm quite available. Fantastic. This is great. And what advice would you like to leave us with? You know, I've always maintained that designers, artists, singers, sculptors, filmmakers are the last to need advice. Uh, they have traditionally been the ones who lead the way. And they are capable of leading the way because they are the ones who not only have a naturally keen vision, and I'm not being fascist, actually designers and creators have a naturally keen vision, but they are also the most in touch with their feelings and sentiments and approach to life that they can translate those visions, negative or positive, into the positive form of the artifact. So the mere fact that you can turn your anger into a statue or your hatred into a song or your most negative feeling into a work of art that people can admire already means that you are a cut uh, above someone who will just turn it into an act of anger. So in reality, they don't really need much advice. But the one thing I could say that, that I hope maintains a certain degree of relevance is to keep an open eye toward the world around you without being influenced by opinions, meaning appeal to primary sources as much as you can and don't listen to already processed opinions as delivered by politicians, influencers, and media personalities. Not that I have anything against those people, but I think that primary sources give you a fresher outlook, and then when you listen to already made-up interpretations, you can critically listen to them to pick what suits you and discard the rest. So keep a critical outlook on the world around you, and this way I promise that you will maintain a level of originality in your work. This is great. Well, what would you also say to students that, would, that are starting out now on, on their education journey? 
many of the students in the design field do not really know what they're getting into. I'm always surprised by people of first year who don't really have a clear idea of what it is they're going to study. Uh, so interior design is decoration and architecture is contracting and it, when, when it's anything but. So I think that once they enter into this field, the best thing to do is to consider those before them as much a resource as the faculty is, because there's only so much a faculty person can do. But people who have been in the field around you, even if they're one year ahead of you, will be able to tell you maybe a word in passing that will open up horizons in front of you. So to have that openness and also to realize for the students that everything around you is your business. Everything around you is your concern. Do not ever think that, that there is something that doesn't mean you that has nothing to do with you, because it's not design, it's not architecture, that's something else. I had somebody tell me, how is this interior design? It is interior design, and you will find out soon enough. Just keep an open mind and an open heart. We do not work in equations. We work in something that not necessarily is arrived at by straight lines. So if the, the road sounds and seems narrow and winding, it's because that's the way it is, just like the, the formation of a human brain. It's complex, it's exciting, it's full of surprises, but it's definitely worth the journey. Well, this has been an amazing uh, conversation. Thank you so much, Taha, and it's been a real pleasure. And uh, also looking forward to seeing you on our Design Education uh, Forum as well. Anytime, it's my pleasure, always my pleasure.